0: Welcome to this episode of the vegan family podcast. I'm very excited to have our guest Lori Torgerson white on the podcast, um, who is both a an animal welfare scientist and a mother of three and I have all sorts of questions for you on both of these things. But first, just hi, and thank you for joining.
1: Hi, and thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here excited to uh... I'm mean, talk to folks about about both things, but especially vegan parenting. I think there are a small number of us and we often feel alone. So um, I, th- I just think it's great that you have this podcast for folks to listen to.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of times I think about the culture of kind of the vegan movement and the culture of parenting and how they're sort of separated, <laughs> you know, and it's one of those things that I think there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of interesting topics and potential kind of community building if we were to combine the two um, a little bit more.
1: For sure, they're very separate. There, I mean, there have been times when in the movement, I felt very alone as a parent um, because in a lot of places, kids are just not talked about, in some places not even accepted as being okay to have really. So um, I think it's so important to have that community building uh among parents in the movement and and parents and 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 vegan parents in general
0: yeah yeah i think you know um i think a lot about where this movement can go and the opportunities for us to kind of have a, a more mainstream vegan culture and kind of people really feeling empowered about you know their compassion for animals and how that impacts their total worldview, not necessarily defines our worldview, but can kind of enhance it. And I really think about how important it is that those are the values and the conversations that happen sort of, you know, in the family. Thing that I believe without really um, having a place to have those conversations and having a way for people to, to gain their own confidence, their own sense of kind of autonomy and what they wanna do as a parent, what they wanna do. know in terms of their own family culture and how to integrate these kinds of thinking you know into that that we don't we don't get into the mainstream without really talking you know to parents and to um, you know the the part of us that really you know all of us are part of a family (laughs) you know like we don't have those um, you know those conversations enough I think so, I'm glad that we're having this one. <laughs> I want to start let's get let's get back to that, but I want to start with a little bit more about you and kind of how you came to the movement and what you do because I think your your sort of expertise is so interesting. Right now is is it you're the director of Research at Farm Sanctuary is that your current role? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that because I think what you get to do with the animals at the sanctuary sounds very fun and also very interesting.
1: Sure. So yes, I've been at Farm Sanctuary for just over a year now. I'm hired as their director of research, first director of research here, um, first animal welfare scientist working at Farm Sanctuary. And so I was hired uh, primarily to start and manage a program where we work with the animal residents to learn more about uh, their inner lives so more about their sentience, their cognition, their personalities, uh, things like that. So that's a kind of half of my job is doing work with the animals. So you know, we have some interesting uh, studies going on One we're looking at social networks and goats. So you know, trying to just find out what a goat society really looks like. Um, You know, are there certain individuals who are kind of nodes within that society who are holding it all together? Are there, you know, those who are causing it all to fall apart by, you know, headbutting everyone? Um, So, so looking at that, and then looking at how um, our goal is the next step there to look at how welfare is related to a goat's place within their society. So is it that the most dominant individuals, you know, I think traditionally we would think the most dominant individuals are um also have the best welfare. So like whoever, whoever's in charge kind of has the best life and those at the the bottom don't. But um but I don't think that's what we're going to find, you know, even within humans there are some of us who want to be CEOs and some of us who want to be individual contributors and putting an individual contributor into a CEO role does not mean that they'll have you know better well-being. So that's a study we're looking at. Then um, we have a couple studies um, pretty early in the works right now, uh, just working on kind of preliminary methods for those studies. So one is um, our hope is to examine PTSD whether there are symptoms um, similar to those seen in humans with PTSD, so PTSD has been studied in other species, such as um, elephants and chimpanzees. Uh, Also, rodents have been used as an animal model for PTSD studies in humans. So the methodologies are there to look at PTSD in other non-human animal species. So uh, we're interested to see when we rescue uh, animals from bad conditions, essentially. Will they exhibit symptoms of PTSD? Will those symptoms go away over time at sanctuary? So that's something we're interested in looking at, and that's some cool studies just on, um, you know, do chickens enjoy learning? Uh, so things like that. So that's a portion of my job, and then really kind of incorporating welfare, incorporating welfare science into the, uh, you know, care. Um, so formally incorporating it into the care of our sanctuary residents. Uh, And then the other piece, the other hat I wear, which is unexpected and how I know you, um, obviously, is uh, doing work on food systems. So Mm -hmm. I'm also helping to manage our uh, food system transition work, where we are using research um, and policy advocacy to create to help to um, create a more sustainable, just and compassionate food system. Yeah,
0: well, you know, you and I could talk about that forever. I love talking about that because that's kind of, to me, the next wave of, you know, getting these people getting kind of the the industry out of animal farming and into moving toward a a more plant centric centric system. But um, I want to go back to the goats for a minute because this is so fun. I am, you know, it's I'm really fascinated by this kind of stuff because I think people don't think about the level of complexity that other species have. And I think it's important not to think about it through the lens of just how close to a human is it? Um, And think about these animals sort of for who they are. That's also something I always think about as a parent too, like for these kids are now it's kind of like, are you gonna mold them out of a lump of clay into what kind of what you want them to be? But I think, you know, um, the idea of like our social influencers within the goat society is so human. It's so like fun to kind of think about that And I I remember years ago, you you probably know this study, but this really stuck with me. Um, They were looking at neurotransmitters in different species to identify what the level of bonding and kind of the concept of love um, capacity was in different animals. And I remember one study, I just read a report on it that said, you know, okay, yes, like your dog does love you. Um, and they had all these kind of pairs that they had evaluated like people to people and dog to people and dog to dog but there was this one friendship between a goat and a dog and they were like this goat just off the charts is so in love with this dog <laughs> compared to all the other pairs in this in this you know study that they were doing and I, I always think about that because whenever I'm around goats goats are like I just have a, a soft spot for goats but like whenever I'm around goats I really kind of look at just how like, intense their you know their feelings or you can just really see that they're so they have so much personality they just want to be right in your face they have those crazy eyes and you know that big kind of bony middle of their face and they'll get you know stand up on something just to get right in front of your face and kind of be like what's up what's going on you know like you can just tell that they really feel things so intensely. And I just love the idea of looking at their kind of social dynamics and how that impacts what it is they do. And it makes it feel, it really does make it feel like there's so much kind of closeness to, to humans that way.
1: Yeah, it does. And I agree with you about their intensity. I mean, when I've been with goats and they decide that they want me to pet them, they, you know, I've been surrounded by, you know, goats all around me, one of them, you know, Kind of petting his head on my butt, and then someone in front of me who really wants me to pet them, and then someone else who's kind of fighting with that person so that I can pet them too, and it's just, um, yeah, when the, they know what they want, um, and they're gonna get it. So I think they are, yeah, probably big emotions and also pretty um, motivated to get, to get what they want. Um, but I like that you're also bringing up, you know, the the idea of you know, there being value, not just in people seeing these other species as similar to us, but also seeing how they are amazingly different from us. And so I'm hoping that, you know, over the next years, as we do more research, um, we will be able to, to uncover some of those things as well. And those are harder questions to ask, it's Mm -hmm. really easy to ask you know, is goat society like human society? That's an easy question to ask. It's harder and, and kind of just more exploratory, I think, when we're asking questions about how goats are different, but um I have this, this dream of eventually, well, and hopefully soon, uh sorry. Um you know, I would love to have David Attenborough. So, if you're listening, David Attenborough, I want to talk to you. Let's um, tag
0: him when we post this,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> David Attenborough, uh, you know, coming to the sanctuary to do one of his amazing documentaries on how incredibly, like, cool and different these species are, and thus deserving our of our yeah. compassion, not just yeah. because they're like us. Um, you know, I think recently all of the kind of hype around octopuses is yeah, is showing that animals can be really different from us and really cool and deserve our compassion because of how different and cool they are, not just because they're like us. So that's somewhere I'd like to go with the research as well. But like I said, it's those are harder questions to ask.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think even, you know, the, the magic of a sanctuary, I think, is, you know, that personal connection of, seeing something that both is so similar and so different and realizing that you can understand it. you know, like that's whether whether it's like I understand it because I can relate. like you your story about the goats like you know fighting it's like this is exactly like if you know you had candy and a, a soccer team of kids, you know. <laughs> um, but I think it's equally fascinating if you can kind of understand it for its differences. Um, and that does, you know, kind of, um, you don't have that experience in other contexts, right? The sanctuary is uniquely capable of producing that kind of personal connection because it's so different. And when you were talking about the PTSD, I was like, you know, the vast majority of human animal interactions are humans interacting with animals who have been altered from what they were evolved to be and do, right? Like they're in situations. It's factory farms or zoos or an entertainment situation um, where they are being traumatized, you know, they are being sort of, you know, they're just sort of existing um, To the best, you know, of their capabilities, but they're not sort of being the animals that they are or have capability to be so it's so interesting to, to hear you say, well, what's the aftermath of this, what if we put them in an environment where they can heal. Do they have the same kind of PTSD sort of structure actually when you mentioned elephants that brought to mind another story I heard years ago and you probably know much more about this than I do, but I just found it so fascinating that there were there were elephants. um, Who were disturbing human towns and stuff and it turned out that that was because these were young male elephants who did not have the normal social structure of elephants because there was all this poaching going on of the older, like sort of leaders of the elephant society. Um, And so you had basically, you know, young teenage boy elephants going around causing trouble because they didn't have any, you know, kind of parental mentorship father type figures, Um, which is another one where you were kind of like, of course we can sort of see parallels and, create that kind of same um, sense of sameness that comes with looking at something, you know, people are so fascinated by elephants, like immediately, there's certain animals that you're just immediately fascinated by. Uh, And I think that's maybe why that's just sort of stuck with me all those years. But I just love the idea of of thinking, how can you maximize the value of something like a sanctuary and the transformative effect of the sanctuary, compared to most opportunities that humans have for being around animals and having a relationship with animals where they're in a situation where they are regularly and sort of unremittingly being traumatized. For sure.
1: Yeah, I mean at Sanctuary, the animals, I mean the goal is to, like you're saying, let the animals live the lives that they want to live, whatever, you know, that may look like. And so I think that providing those opportunities for, you know, social bonding that wouldn't be happening. In industrial animal agriculture, uh, providing the environments that allow them to live their best lives, that also will allow them to, um, you know, express, you know, cognitive and emotional capacities that I think yeah. would be hidden, like you're saying, in other settings. So, working with the residents to learn about about these capacities at sanctuary, I think is. Is our opportunity to show really kind of what these animals are capable of. um, Yeah. That we just can't see when they're in cages or warehouses or, you know, in these completely artificial settings that um, animal agriculture creates for them.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, there's so much potential value to it, but it also just sounds, you know, really fun. I mean, you're basically in a situation where your job is to, you know, be that person kind of watching. To see kind of how you can you can um, capture something that maybe no one has ever been able to capture before. Um, yeah, that's that's really fun. Even though we have that intuitive sense of that connection, there's something more to this when you can say, no, actually, this is. There's data supporting what's going on here.
1: There. Yeah. Yeah. That's my hope. Um, but also, you know, as we're thinking about this, I'm thinking about. Uh, you know the social the humans you know social change and and attitudinal and behavioral change how that happens and yeah learning about these animals change hearts and minds um you know so thinking about both what what's what are the inner lives of these animals like but whatever we can find out what's the what's the most effective way to use that information um to change the way you know, we, you and treat harmed animals. Um, yeah. So I think it's tricky because there are times when we're going, well, we already have this information but people are still eating, you know, chickens and fishes and, and cows. And even though we know some of these things, you know, so that cognitive dissonance is so strong, figuring yeah. out how to kind of make that leap and and what sorts of information and how it's presented, you know, that's something I'm also so curious about.
0: Yeah, we spent a lot of time at Animal Outlook looking at that kind of research on attitude and behavior change and how you build messages around that and everything. And that's right, I mean, at the end of the day, the information alone doesn't do it, right? Yeah. There are things that will cause those kind of transformative moments and, you know, but it is is all—it is our job as advocates to kind of package it in a way that connects with certain audiences and that really is, lot, is allows people to feel a sense of self-empowerment and that feels like they can look at the problem and resolve the problem right as opposed to just kind of being burdened by the enormity of the issue and i think sanctuaries is so nice because you have that positive element of things as well so let's um let's get into kids and parenting and motherhood so you have three children i do they are how old
1: well the youngest is three but he claims he's two still Mm -hmm. (laughs) next year he's going to be eight And then I also have a seven year
0: old and a nine year old. Okay. So um, you were part of the movement before you became a mother or after?
1: After. So, yeah, I joined the movement with two kids and then had another after I was part of the movement. I had not at all thought I was ever going to be an animal rights activist. I thought animal rights activists were crazy people who just, you know, threw beet juice at women in fur coats and. I am a very rational scientist, so I was not going to be part of of this, despite being vegan. Um, So yeah, no, it was after having kids that I joined the movement.
0: Were you already vegan when you had kids?
1: I was like almost vegan. I was one of those, um, I would eat cheese on pizza, like once a month or something, Uh of vegans, but everything else was vegan.
0: So how so your vegan journey was happening while your kids were sort of talking age kind of at the same time you were doing it at the same time
1: they were well so i mean i became vegetarian mostly vegan about 10 years ago so before so my first pregnancy i was vegetarian um and then it was after my middle one was born that uh, a bit after that that um, we went fully vegan, my husband and I both, me first, then him, um, but, and that was largely because, you know, I would be nursing her. I don't know why this didn't occur to me with my oldest. I mm-hmm. was probably so sleep deprived. I was like, just, I did anything uh-huh. I could <laughs> But nursing um, my middle one, I, you know, would was just thinking about how, how can I yeah. still be doing this? When, you know, imagine if someone came up and stole her from me and hooked me up to a machine yeah. Um, and so that was what what made me make the switch finally. And so I put a picture of a, a really cute calf in a wheelbarrow on my phone. And anytime I was like faced with the prospect of cheese, I would look at that calf and go, Do I really need to? I love
0: that. <laughs> <work."> <laughs> it's such a good, like, practical tip, too. You're actually so there's a number of people who have talked about making that connection between you know human. Mother child bonds and nursing and the dairy industry, but you're the first person that I've talked to that said this is what pushed me into being vegan like this specific thing that's really interesting because I think a lot of a lot of. Especially you know like first time moms that i've talked to that was a barrier point in their veganism like if they're if they started out vegan or they're thinking about it, all of the pediatricians asking them how many ounces of milk their kid is getting and all that stuff was like, you know, they kind of were, their confidence was waning because they're not sure if, you know, everybody that they're all the experts that they're having to listen to are telling them something else. Um, but it sounds like you had the opposite experience, we were kind of like, No, I'm I'm sure now that this is what I want to do.
1: Well, I'm so So I mean, if you combine, I'm clearly a researcher, and, mm-hmm. and I'm a- you know, and against the system, fight the patriarchy kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when I, you know, I had those doctors saying those things to me. And so I gathered up my research, you know, would tell them the reasons why they were wrong and then find a different doctor. And so I just, you know, in the early years of being a parent, I think we went through like, you know, six pediatricians until I found someone who was um, okay at least they're not vegan um our pediatrician's great she's not vegan but uh she's fully supportive of the fact that we are
0: oh good good yeah i you know I, i'm kind of similar in that i don't really just take like the word of authorities <laughs> you know like i'm i'm also the the research kind of minded person but i realize like i remember a pediatrician telling me oh you know like how much whole like the, okay now it's time to switch them to whole milk how much, like, you know, milk, how many ounces of milk are they getting when I'm like, we're vegan. And then she, she's like, well, okay, then almond milk or soy milk or whatever. I'm like, you know, those things are completely different, right? <laughs> like, that, like, I mean, it's not like they're not even in the same category, even from like a macronutrient point of view. And I resent the the implication of the question in the first place that we need to keep doing this. Like, are we? Do we need to to like, you know, sort of play at some ritual of drinking milk, because now that we're not drinking it from cows, we got to drink it from, right. I think we're going to be okay. Like, we're just going to have a kale smoothie and move on.
1: <laughs> it's never, it doesn't make any sense at all, but it is just that like humans don't like to change. So if we're yeah. not going to have cow's milk, then let's drink some other kind of milk just so that we have something white in a bottle for- the Yeah. Um, yeah,
0: well, but I, like- you know, I do think you have to be like kind of that level of assertive and, and, you know, pretty confident in your decisions in order to weather that a little bit. Like not everyone would go through six pediatricians.
1: You know? <laughs> no, I, I might be on the extreme end of uh, yeah, making sure that we get what we need. Um, it's hard. It is hard because so many people were trained as children and as adults even to trust doctors that they yeah. know best, but doctors aren't trained in nutrition. so. They shouldn't be telling us you know what our what kind of milk our kids should be drinking they're not trained in sleep despite the fact that they try to tell you where your baby should sleep or how they Mm -hmm. should you know like they're not trained in these things but they're giving out that advice and so um i think it's hard it's so hard for so many people to push back against someone who has that medical degree and is telling you what to do in a very authoritative way
0: yeah yeah, well, I think it's easier once you're around to the second kid, right? Oh, yeah. first kid is the harder one where you're like, am I even keeping this this little person alive, like properly? But yeah, by the time the second kid, you're like, "Nope, I know what I'm doing now.
1: <laughs> okay. totally. um,
0: so how so how did your kids sort of come into their identity around veganism? Like, how do they think about it? Did they struggle? Is it like, you know, something that is really front and center for them? Is it just kind of, is what it is? It's you know not a big topic of conversation or you know a big part of their identity. Like, how do they, kind of, feel the topic?
1: Yeah. So I would say, I mean, they've been they've been vegan for pretty much as long as they can remember. Uh, you know, they had the older two had some cheese when they were really little. Or milk. Um, maybe my middle one didn't. But for them, it's just normal. It's part of life. Um, you know, I was, when I was working before coming to Farm Sanctuary, I was at Mercy for Animals. And while I was there, you know, part of my job was watching investigation footage. So mm-hmm. I knew what was going on. I obviously wasn't showing them the investigation footage, but I was telling them the truth um, when they were asking me uh you know they would ask me what i do and why don't we eat animals and why do you know Why does grandma animals or what is you know whoever yeah animals. and so i would just tell them you know the reason why we don't do this is because you know we don't want to kill animals mm-hmm. um and our friends and so you know i would give them a simple message but telling them the truth about it and so you know when my oldest was Pretty young, he knew this probably by the time he was two, and he was mad about it. We would like we went to a a place nearby where they have it's like a village of old houses from you know like Henry Ford kind of
0: mm-hmm,
1: houses, uh-huh. Thomas Edison, all of these historic people. They moved all of these houses to
0: this place. They also have a farm there. Where I think I've been there before. Really, you know I'm a Midwesterner too. I grew oh, yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we spent some time in in Michigan.
1: Oh, awesome. So they have a farm there where they're showing like how farming was done historically. And there was a farmer out in the field with some cows or something. I don't remember which animals. Um, but he was yelling at the farmer through the gate, like he was so mad about it then. And um, so it just made sense to him. Yeah. Um, was, you know, my middle one, when they were in preschool, they went to preschool together. Um, it was a multi-age classroom and they would uh apparently tell ask their friends why their friends were eating mm-hmm. dead animals. and i was like we've got to work on your
0: messaging." <laughs> we so definitely had
1: that too <laughs> dead animals um and then like recently my youngest we were at a store and there was some cow's milk yogurt and he asked for the yogurt if we could buy the yogurt and i said no we're not gonna buy that yogurt it's made out of cow's milk and he looked at me in shock and he was uh-huh. like cows milk why mama do they do the people think that they're baby cows <laughs> <laughs> but they're saying, so there's a lot of conversation around it um yeah. they understand they are you know there has been confusion over why the people we love still continue to yeah even, we don't and i think that's been the hardest part for me as a parent is trying to explain like human psychology to my tiny yes. children and, and cognitive dissonance and the fact that, you know, these people aren't bad people. They, it's just they've been taught that this is what they're supposed to do and they don't have the information that we have. Or yeah, if they uh, do have it, they're not processing it in the same way we are, kind of, so.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, in some ways this that story is very heartwarming because it's like a world where you could expect to walk into a grocery store and see a bunch of vegan yogurt and then be like, what is this cow's milk yogurt doing there, right? Like we did not have that, you know, even 10 years ago, Um, certainly, you know, when I was going vegetarian and vegan, I did not have that. But um, so that's nice. They can like kind of make demands on the world without the baggage of the earlier generations. I mean, what are you doing here with this cow's milk out. you're so out of date? Um, but you know that the issue of the dead, When I mean, you saying that I remember them like that, that age, younger wow. age when they're first kind of figuring this a lot. I remember them very enthusiastically, like going up to like, you know, a, a pizza at a birthday party. Like, is this vegan or dead? <laughs> <laughs> and I would always like, you know, they're like little and cute. They have all that like intense energy and stuff. And so like the, the uh, adults would find that like so funny, but, um, I do think I agree with you that the challenge is like, how do you help them navigate like there are people, um, you know, that we love and that we're connected to who are, who are not vegan and um, I think the hardest part for me has been not trying to like justify it for them. Mm-hmm. Like I, I find myself wanting to step in, you know, and use some of the things that I do to explain away, you know, some of these things. Instead, um, instead, I kind of forced myself to be like, "Well, what do you think?" Or like, hmm, "Yeah, that's a you know, that's a challenge. Like, that's sort of difficult to understand, isn't it? You know." Um, and then I also found myself, especially when they were little, like kind of first talking and figuring this stuff out, um, really getting frustrated by adults who wouldn't just answer them. Like if they said, "Hey, like grandma or whatever." <laughs> How come you eat dead animals, right? And then they would avoid answering. And I'm like, Why are you avoiding answering? Just answer the question. I'll be like, Yeah, I'll just pull up a chair. Like,
1: <laughs> so that you. My kids haven't asked. I don't think I've suggested that to them. But I think they've maybe they've known that this isn't going to end well. But as far as I can remember, I don't think they've ever actually asked any of our family members who are not vegan why they're not vegan. It's just interesting. This- this is just they're just accepting that, and maybe it is because I'm doing some of that, explaining it away that you said you've tried to avoid doing, you know, which is actually yeah. what I also do for my own like personal well-being. Yes, right, activist. Like I have to, I have to explain it away so that I'm not just angry at the world all the time.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I think like you know you have that kind of balance you have to strike as a parent between wanting your kids to have their own kind of critical thinking and engage with the world and also kind of being protective and so you know if i'm not catching myself and being like no i you know <laughs> let's not give this a pat answer let's not say well you know I've, I've almost caught myself being like well if people really got it like if they really knew what was going on like they jan- change their behavior and i'm like no they wouldn't
1: <laughs> that's no not- they wouldn't
0: i know that like i can be in my work zone, you know, like work mode and think that and understand that. But you know, when I'm just like, you know, driving down down the road, and this is like one of those moments where we have these deep conversations and something like that comes up, you know, I'm like, I really wish that were true. And so I, I'll, you know, be almost ready to say, and then I'd be like, No, 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 you know, I'll say, Well, I'll say, What do you think we should do? How do you think we should kind of make things change? And then of course, that becomes the most hilarious conversation. What do they think we should
1: do? I mean, my kids think we should arrest all of the all of the farmers and I've explained that the farmers aren't the problem. Like they're all they always have these, like <laughs> you're saying, ridiculous ideas of how we should uh change the world. And it usually involves them becoming police officers and arresting everybody. Yes. In yes. agriculture.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because kids are so um they're such a natural like sort of sense of right and wrong and understanding the world through the lens of who are the guardians of good and who are evil. Right. So that's why we have you know so many superheroes and things that are built on myths and all that stuff that like kids are so kind of good at that. I remember actually this is not about veganism, but I remember having this conversation about um, one of the police killings. Um, I think it was George Floyd and uh, explaining that to my then four year old because I think remember how it came up but you know we were talking about you know obviously it was a major issue we wanted to bring up and um it was one of those bedtime conversations and you know he was like so the police are villains in disguise (laughs) (laughs) and it just it was so funny to me i actually had like a whole video after that because it was a long very interesting conversation about like what's fair and how should we deal with this and you know the importance of like you know what is race and all that stuff but um the, uh, the sort of initials, the initial reaction that he had about like, well, we have good. And then we have evil. And we just need to have the good guys win like they normally win, don't they?
1: Right.
0: And I think that idea of like kind of saying, Well, no, it's not really as simple as that. Like, there are people out there, you know, doing these things that are really horrible things. And we can't like, we can't water that down. We can't try to, you know, kind of justify that. Um, But also, you know, there's a lot of complicated pieces of the puzzle. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's not just a question of, you know, are they a hero or a villain? And that's the end.
1: I mean, we've, I've always taught my kids that there are no bad people. There are people who do bad things, but there are no bad people. And they'll say, well, you know, what about you know, Donald Trump. and I'll say, well, he does bad things, but he's not a bad person. And I'll say, do you think that when he was born, when he was a baby, was he bad? And they'll say no. And I'll say, so it's, and people aren't born bad, but, you know, things happen to them in their lives that, um, you know, they have different experiences that lead them to do the things that they're doing. And so no one is a bad person. And I and they kind of always look at me with some skepticism. I'm not, like, sure. <laughs> oh, I'm not really sure about that, but okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I honestly kind of to a, think that way. It's a privileged um way to think about it too. I think that, you know, like when you were talking about your son um thinking that police are, are villains. Well, if he were a you know a black boy, he would probably you know, that's a real, yeah. and so, which is a whole other conversation to have, but, um, you know, me being able to think about it that way, I recognize is, uh, you know, a circumstance of my privilege, I think.
0: Well, I think, you know, even though it may not be sort of factually like a hundred percent true, <laughs> right? Like there is something valuable about, because of course there are people who are just like, you know, sociopaths or whatever, right? Like. But at, but at the same time, like th- that way of looking at the world of like, let's separate people from their behavior, I think is so empowering because it gives you this sense of, okay, well, first of all, for children, the idea that like, well, then I'm not bad, right? Because a lot of kids will really internalize that. But I think the idea of being able to say, okay, all of this horrible stuff is going on, um, but the world is not just full of, you know all these sort of agents of, of darkness right Like it's, it's a question of how do we want to organize the society that we have and i remember when i was in law school i did a um there's a program where you go into schools like and and give them basically like almost like a social justice and law kind of course and i remember starting because like first day of law school you kind of why do we punish right like what's the theory of criminal law right but that idea of, you know, me walking into that school, um, that was a very under-resourced school, and you know there was a lot of, of kind of issues around it. But actually, I had a ton of fun in that class. Like those kids were awesome. I um, walked in at the same idea, like okay, so how do we want to organize? And I had this whole exercise about like, well, if you were a person who you know wanted to develop the city, and if you were the person who you know like needed access to the water, like whatever, like you kind of role play whatever. But then I had to walk it back because they couldn't understand the, con- the the perspective taking of how do we design our society, right? Like if they weren't able to think of themselves as having agency for, you know, being part of who is deciding what the rules are and mm-hmm. who represent their interests and what to do, right? So I think there's something you know, going back to kind of the the power of vegan values and thinking about animals, right, I think there's something that's really like, like there's something about developing a sense of ethics and morality around having that sense of empowerment. Well, we know what we want the world to be like. We know what's fair and unfair. And now it's a question of changing behavior to align with what's fair and unfair. And I think what you said about saying, yeah, like people aren't bad, This is just a question of them making bad choices is is so like integral to what we're doing as vegan advocates right like it's this idea of like. We have that bird's eye view like we know how how society should be should be different, we know where we kind of took a left turn and did really bad things here and now there's all these animals in these horrible conditions. But it doesn't mean that we can't you know kind of empower ourselves as agents of change you know, all of us, no matter whether we're two or 92. Right. and Just say, well, we just need to adjust the behavior. I think there's something really important about that as kind of a, um, you know, a, a parenting philosophy that also translates into now my child is going to be sort of a, a person who has self efficacy throughout their lives.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and I think it gives hope too when you think of it that way, if you think that people are inherently bad, then there's no hope yeah thinking about it in this different way and then also empowering yourself to create change there's a lot more hope in the world which is something we really really need right now
0: yeah yeah i mean i think that's right like the the idea of why would i change anything because it's all hopeless and people are evil is is the poison (laughs) that (laughs) we're dealing with right And I think it does start at that level of kids figuring out the world and just the basic sketched out outline of like, you know, what's good, what's bad, what's fair, what's not like, you know, you asked about what do they say, you know, how should we change things around? And, you know, sometimes um, my older one will just kind of be like, why are people still eating animals? Like, why? (laughs) You know, like, he just can't believe it. and, you know, I, they've said things like my younger one has gotten really detailed about like, oh, well, we should put like decoy, like robot animals in a slaughterhouse and then <laughs> the machinery and then like the rest of them could not be slaughtered or like, you know, that there's um, we should put just stuffed animals, like pretend like it's meat, but just stuffed animals. And then when people eat it, like they're gonna, gross, this is just stuffing. And like, you know, there's all these like sort of detailed things that uh, but you know, at least like that's the way that they, they should be thinking right is like, how do we solve this problem like we can solve this problem, rather than kind of it being something that's coming at them. Yeah, threatening them, which I think is a really important distinction, because these are heavy issues, you know.
1: They are. I mean, they're really happy. I saw a therapist to deal with my own compassion fatigue from it. So putting that on these tiny, tiny shoulders is a really big thing. So I think what you're doing, encouraging them to come up with these awesome ideas about how we can end animal agriculture, um, you know, is the right direction to be going in to empower them in that way. I love that.
0: Do you feel like we haven't really talked about this like peer relationships, do you feel like your kids veganism has sort of been either an enhancing factor or like a. a uh, you know problem with their peers at all.
1: we haven't had any problems. so i'll say we go to we've chosen a school where people generally hold a lot of our values there's vegan hot lunch offered every day um we have. Friends who are, you know, vegetarian or vegan. So, if anything, I think it's been I've had, you know, the my kids' friends' moms come and tell me, well, so and so says they're vegan now because your child's. Vegan. Oh yeah. So we've had a lot of of that, um, but they haven't ever expressed any like discomfort or you know had any negative social interactions that they've told me of because. Yeah. Of yeah
0: i think that's something i was really worried about like before kids and i think like we've had a total opposite experience like it's been something that they're really excited about doing actually it was fun recently on father's Day. So i guess it wasn't that recent a couple months ago um the kindergarten had a father's day event so normally drop parent and then my husband went to do the drop-off to do the father's day event And there was all—he's like there were all these women just coming up to me and being like, "You're the vegan dad!" Like, (laughs) like they're telling me all this stuff about vegan food they're eating and how they want to like try more vegan. And they're just like, "We just had the vegan dad." I'm like, "What? You just exist!" Like, (laughs) this is all you're getting. (laughs) But apparently, like you know, it's a thing. Like people are intrigued. Who knew?
1: That's so funny. Well, and it is, I mean, I think it's so much more common and easier for women, usually, you know, there have been studies that show that women are more more likely to become vegan than men. So when you're the vegan dad, that's even more special than being the vegan mom.
0: Yes, yes, that's a good point. Well, I wanna wanna make a parenting confession and I wanna ask you a question about it. Um, So to kind of lighten the mood a little bit, I am so curious about the, you know, animal welfare science stuff. and how it may or may not have impacted your parenting, because I will tell you that I, um, you know, especially when I just had one and it was first baby and everything, like there are times when like you don't know what to do, (laughs) right? Like the the parenting books don't tell you or they just kids just do strange things and I have definitely just fallen back on what would I do if this was a dog and I realized that. That's kind of taboo to say um, that uh, uh, the comparison that people make between like oh like this is you know like having a companion animal versus having a kid like people get offended by that I do not I think actually that I you know sort of respect both as they are and there certainly are, are overlaps but like I'll give you an example I mean this is why it kind of came up when you were when you were talking earlier about animal behavior um, like. I remember when my oldest one was, I think one, he suddenly got a phobia of the bathtub, like this absolute ridiculous phobia. Like he couldn't go anywhere near it. Okay, yeah. And I was like, what do I do with this? Like too young to reason with, like needs to take a bath. <laughs> and I was like, what would I do if this was a fearful dog, right? And I, And I just did exactly that. And he was in the tub happy in five minutes.
1: Awesome. So what did you do? Did you? Um,
0: I gave him treats like a few feet away from the tub. And then I turned the water on quietly. And then we moved closer and closer to the tub. And then he was eating a sandwich in the tub. Happened.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. So I've not done that, but I think you're right. I mean, I do sometimes think about people in general, I think in that way, using these kind of positive operant training techniques. so maybe I shouldn't say that, you know. maybe with my husband, I know how to, um, to, to train him to respond, but I think people in general respond to positive um, rewards. And yeah. so using that for your children or for anyone around you, I think can be a, a useful tool.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was like, so what kind of magic? Cause I felt like at that moment, I was like, whoa, like that was magic. <laughs> like he was screaming his head off five minutes earlier. And then he was like, you know, perfectly happy, like it never happened. Um, So, yeah, I mean, are there any lessons, even if they're, you know, um, less sort of literal conditioning lessons, like that's good too. But are there anything that, like, just as your worldview has sort of been shaped by your training and your experiences, how do you bring that into your parenting and into kind of your thinking about? you know, the the kind of parent child relationship and the relationship as uh, between like humans and non human animals, I think, to me, like, it goes, it's a two way street, right? Like the the way that I feel about myself as a human is very much influenced by how I feel, you know, we're interconnected with, you know, non yeah. animals. So I think it just would be so interesting to kind of hear your perspective as a scientist, right? And, a, and a parent going through bringing up, you know, three different individual little, you know, people. um, And whether that that really has kind of, you know, bled into your your parenting.
1: So I'll say I'll give you a ridiculous example. First, when Felix, when my oldest was a baby, he didn't sleep at all. Like Mm -hmm. it was we were so tired. I can't really remember much of that time because of how little he slept. I do remember, however, creating a spreadsheet where I collected data on his sleep patterns, um, (laughs) you know, including like what led up to the sleep, how long did Uh he sleep for, where was he at, what was the temperature, like all of these data points I would collect. And then I ran, actually ran statistics on my data set (laughs) to try to figure out what would be most likely to, um, you know, get him to sleep. Unfortunately, I was not successful, and he still doesn't really sleep. You um, didn't learn anything from
0: your statistical. Analysis. It was
1: pretty much like he's just not going to sleep. That was, it was <laughs> it, it, no, it wasn't, yeah. There wasn't enough variance, and I think the amount of sleep uh-huh. for there to be any sort of you know yeah. significant results there. Um, but I think you know when you're talking about. Our relationship with animals and the way I think about animals and how that impacts my parenting and and I think it really is um in animal welfare in general. You know, in animal welfare we talk a lot about um giving animals agency, you know, giving mm-hmm. them voice and control over their lives. And so I think that comes through in the way I parent and trying to give my kids as much um meaningful choice as I as I can in their lives and and give them control so you know i'm someone who my kids will will go places and they're wearing the most ridiculous clothes anyone's ever seen because Mm -hmm. i let them choose their clothes from the time they can you know pick up something they can choose whatever they want to wear or Uh um you know so just small things like that as much as possible giving them giving them that sense of autonomy and agency so that they can become like you were saying earlier, the best version of themselves, instead of someone that I'm trying to, you know, like, it, they shouldn't become a mini version of me. Yeah, so I think it was influenced both by my, you know, training in animal welfare and my thoughts about animals. Um, Also, I'll say, I'll give a plug to a really good book that I think was life changing for me as a parent was The Awakened Family by Shafali Sabari. And okay. that book was honestly life-changing for me as a person, but also life-changing for me as a parent. And she talks a lot about this, you know, we've we've got this idea of who our children should be based on society and, and um, going in that direction means that no one is going to live their best life. Um, yeah. And so that's influenced and is, but it's in line too with that kind of philosophy of really giving as much power as I can to these, these tiny humans and recognizing that just because they're children doesn't mean that their needs are not needs. Um, yeah, you know, the need for a blue cup, if like, someone really wants a blue cup, and I can provide a blue cup, and it's not going to be the end of the world. Again, yeah. But, um, and so I found myself, when I start to say no to something, then I'll question, like, am I really? Is there an actual reason why I'm saying no to this? And if there isn't any good reason, I'll change my mind and I'll go back and and give them whatever they needed and then explain to them you know, how my thought process changed. And, and and that I think has been pretty effective in hopefully having happy children who are each very, very different.
0: Yeah, I 100% agree with that. I think it's so, I mean, I really can't overstate how valuable that is. And as you're talking about, it, I'm thinking about, this is the first moment that I'm really making this connection. That like really having that strong commitment to the the, respecting the autonomy of children. um, Is is the same value as making sure you have that commitment to respecting the autonomy of animals, I think what you're doing is taking a stand against the viewpoint that just because something is not necessarily capable of expressing you know you know in sort of high language, right, expressing whatever those needs might be, doesn't mean that they're less deserving of that kind of, you know, sort of granting of their individuality, um, you know, and the power that comes with that. I think that there's something really important about that. And it's just in this moment that I'm realizing kind of the connection between that element of a parenting philosophy and that element of, you know, kind of protecting animals. And I think if we can model that for for children too, like they're gonna see that a lot more. And I think they're also naturally able to see that because they're the vulnerable people in the social hierarchy, right? So, you know, we always talk about how kids, it's easy for them to kind of relate to animals and that's why. But I think as we get older, we kind of get conditioned to think, well, just because we have the power, like we can just, you know, bulldoze over some of these things that you know, people you you hear people being like, well, like, I'm not just gonna be run all over by my children and give them a blue cup, whenever they want a blue cup, right. But it's like, no, no, no that's, it's more than that. It, it means more than that. And being able to let them have that autonomy to also, like, figure out what doesn't work for them, and like, kind of fail at things, and then have that support when they're there. to, You know, I think that really, like, there's something so universal about that, that that is extended beyond parenting, and also, you know, into the way that we look at animals and our relationship with animals. Um,
1: and I think it teaches them too, like that their needs matter and being able, you know, otherwise, you know, for not picking up our babies when they're crying or we're not giving them the blue cup, cup, then they grow up and, and don't now know how to take care of their own needs, which honestly also, I think results in them not taking care of the needs of others, including, you know, other animals. Um, exactly. So I think just being attuned to their own needs um, and their own emotions and respecting those as part of you know, the human experience or the animal experience and recognizing that other species of animal also animals also have those needs and those yeah. emotions. And we just need to ask the right questions to be able to try to figure out what those are. So whether it's a baby or a pig, we need mm-hmm. to listen to whatever cues they're giving us so that we can provide them with whatever they need.
0: Yeah, yeah, I love that you kind of add that piece of like, well, how do we design the questions like, you know, sort of thinking as a scientist there. I think that that is really kind of an actionable element of this that I think most people don't have the intuitive grasp of. But I think the more we're doing that, the more like we all have the kind of potential for resonance with these ideas. I think they're very kind of basic parts of psychology, whether that's human or animal psychology to kind of, you know, we can all watch you know a baby struggling or an animal struggling and know what they're saying. You know, it's this is not that's not a mystery. I think that's really kind of an important um, thing that we all share. Um, okay, let me let me ask you, again, to lighten it a little bit and maybe we'll, we'll close on this is like, are there anything, are, are there any things that you do as a family, family traditions, or, you know, uh, sort of rituals around food? That you really feel like I have married the kind of vegan advocacy side of me with the this is the the family tradition that I wanna have, that you'd wanna share with listeners as something that, you know, kind of is a good good tip or a good kind of fun tradition that you
1: do? That's a very good question. I'm not sure I have a good answer. We're not like, I'm not a real tradition kind of person. But I mean, I'll say, you know, we've obviously veganized any food that we've ever wanted to eat. You know, Mm -hmm. things that I grew up eating at Christmas. So like cheesy potatoes or something like that. We've made vegan versions of that um, and introduced to those as traditions for our kids. Um, You know, we always have vegan Thanksgiving. And so we've ended up having Thanksgiving only with my sister and her family who are also Mm -hmm. vegan most years because others want to eat dead turkeys at Thanksgiving. Um, But I think it's uh, I think for, you know, with Thanksgiving, it's really teaching my kids that we are upholding those values um, of gratitude. You know, it just feels really hard to be grateful and then also be sitting at a table with a dead turkey. Um, Yeah. And so, really, just kind of teaching them like that's a holiday where we're putting our vegan values above all else, really, um, because it's so centered on the food. And obviously, it's you know we have discussions about what Thanksgiving really means and and things like that. But um, I think that's one holiday where our veganism kind of is shining through, and we're putting that as the top top priority when we're celebrating um, together.
0: Yeah, I think that kind of brings us full circle from, you know, we talked about kind of the isolation in the beginning of the conversation, you know, and this has been, this is sort of your way of building that community that you kind of wanted to and kind of living those, those values and putting that front and center, at least in this particular ritual or this particular holiday, which I think is nice. And I'm sure that is not lost on the children like this. That's the kind of thing they love, especially at these ages, you know, even sure. Old, I'm sure is kind of ready for that, you know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Great. Well, thank you so much. This has been so fascinating. I have all these thoughts kind of buzzing now from this conversation. So I'm really, really appreciative that you came on. And I hope that everyone listening to us um, feels the same. And um, as always, people can send their kid quotes and their questions, um, tips, tricks to uh, veganfamily at triveg.com. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It's been
0: really fun.